0: Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus, as a Reformed Christian church, we are biblical and confessional. We adhere to the Holy Scriptures, God's Word revealed in the Word of God, the Bible, and we summarize its teachings in our confessions. The Heidelberg Catechism, the Belgic Confession, the Canons of Dort, And in our current series of sermons on the canons of Dort, we are in chapter 1, which deals with divine predestination. We have learned so far that we have all sinned. And so we all deserve to perish. What we deserve is that God would leave us to our just condemnation. But we've heard God sends his, displays his love by sending his son, Jesus, into the world so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The election we have seen is the unchangeable purpose of God from eternity. Out of pure grace, according to his sovereign good pleasure of his own will, he has chosen from the whole human race who are all equally fallen a certain number to redemption in Christ, the anointed mediator and head of the elect. Those who are elect are by nature no better than any others, but they are involved in the common misery of the human race. And yet, God has decreed to give them to Christ, to be saved by him. And by his word and Holy Spirit, he draws them into communion with himself, gives them new life, a renewed heart, faith, justification, sanctification, preserves them in the fellowship of of his son and glorifies them. Now predestination continues to be a sore spot in the church of Jesus Christ, especially in the reformed church. Many people find it very difficult to think about and would rather not. Many would rather not have any sermons ever on election. And it's not because they don't want salvation and heaven and peace with God. They do want that. But the mention of election makes them think about reprobation and justice and hell too. Predestination is never an easy subject to deal with. People are reasonably upset by this doctrine. Many people murmur and complain against the grace of election and the severity of reprobation. They say things like this It's just not fair that only some and not all are elected. It's just not fair, they say. Or it's not fair that some people have to face eternity in hell because God did not choose them to believe. And so we need to ask should election even be the topic of sermons? And how should we think about reprobation? We want to look at this this afternoon from Romans 9 18 to 21. And again from the canons of Dort, this time, chapter 1, articles 14 and 15. If you want to read along, it's at page 99 and 100 in the back of the Psalter book. But first let me read Romans 9, verse 18 through 21. This is God's word. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? And then Article 14 and 15, page 99. As the doctrine of divine election by the most wise counsel of God was declared by the prophets, by Christ himself, and by the apostles, and is clearly revealed in the scriptures both of the Old and New Testament, so it is still to be published in due time and place in the church of God, for which it was peculiarly designed, provided it be done with reverence, in the spirit of discretion and piety, for the glory of God's most holy name, for the enlivening and comforting his people without vainly attempting to investigate the secret ways of the Most High. For I have not shunned to declare to you all the counsel of God, Acts 20, verse 27. All the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor, Romans 11, 33, and 34, For I say, through the grace given to me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. Romans 12, verse 3. Wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability or unchangeableness of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. Hebrews 6, 17 and 18, uh, article 15. What peculiarly tends to illustrate and recommend to us the eternal and unmerited grace of election is the express testimony of sacred scripture that not all but some only are elected, while others are passed by in the eternal decree whom God, out of his sovereign, most just, irreprehensible, and unchangeable good pleasure, has decreed to leave in the common misery into which they have willfully plunged themselves, and not to bestow upon them saving faith and the grace of conversion, but permitting them in his just judgment to follow their own ways, at last for the declaration of his justice to condemn and perish them forever not only on account of their unbelief but also for all their other sins and this is the decree of reprobation which by no means makes god the author of sin the very thought of which is blasphemy but declares him to be an awful irreprehensible and righteous judge an avenger of sin Our theme this afternoon is define election and reprobation. Why and how should election be proclaimed and preached and published? And how should we think about reprobation? Or should we? Why and how should election be preached. Let's first why. Our confession tells us, and it gives a very clear reasons for preaching this doctrine. It mentions the, the most wise counsel of God as its ground. And by that most wise counsel of God, the doctrine of election was declared by the prophets, by Christ himself, and by the apostles. So this doctrine is clearly revealed in the Old Testament and in the New. And on that basis, it must still be published today. Let's take a look and see how the Old Testament and the New Testament reveal this doctrine. It begins already in the book of Genesis. Genesis 3, verse 15, In the seed of the woman, God already declares election. Later on in Genesis, Abram is chosen out of Ur of the Chaldees and called. Isaac is the child of promise, not Ishmael. Jacob has God loved, but the Bible says Esau has he hated. The nation of Israel is loved and chosen from among all the other nations in the Old Testament. Why? Why was that? Why did God choose his Old Testament people and why did he love them Moses tells them in Deuteronomy 7, verse 7 and 8, and he says to the people of Israel, the Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all people, but because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your father. So the Lord not only reveals that he loves his people, but also why he loves his people. And why does he love his people? Well, Moses says, because he loves you. That's why. And he chose you because he's always faithful to keep his covenant. That's the Old Testament. And there are many more places, but we go to the new. And the Lord Jesus, he declares the doctrine of divine election too. In John 10, verse 26 and following... He says to the Pharisees, you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. As I said to you, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. Jesus uses the phrase, my sheep. And that is an election term, as opposed to what he says to others, you are not of my sheep. My sheep, nine times in that few verses it's mentioned. And then in John 17, where Jesus is praying to his Father in heaven, and he says there, and in that prayer, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they kept your word. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept, and none of them is lost, except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Five times, Jesus says here, those whom you gave me. And that's a term of election. The Father gave a certain number of men and women and boys and girls to Jesus. Those whom you gave me. 13 times that's mentioned in, in John 17. Terms of election. The Apostle Paul uses the same and proclaims the same truth in Romans 8. And he says, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, for those who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, those he also called, whom he called, those he also justified, those whom he justified, he also glorified, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? There you have it, predestined, predestined, God's elect. And there are numerous scripture references to the doctrine of divine election. Every time God in his word says, My people, that is a term of election that divides between those who are God's people and those who are not. Article 14 says that this doctrine is declared throughout the whole Bible, and so it is still to be published. In due time and place, in the church of God for which it is principally designed, there's a time and a place for the preaching of this doctrine. You get the idea that election is not to be the main theme of every sermon. And yet, there is a time for it. It must not be overemphasized, and it must never be underemphasized the church of christ we must always strive to to maintain a healthy biblical balance the truth of divine sovereign predestination is so important it is so connected to grace and salvation to misery and sin to man's inability and responsibility and god's sovereignty that it must be more than just occasionally mentioned in the church's preaching and teaching Predestination is central to our faith and doctrine. And so it must have its proper place in the preaching of the church, in its teachings, in its discipling ministries. We cannot afford to be indifferent about the doctrine of election. We may never dismiss it as being unimportant or irrelevant. But we must keep in mind, beloved, that all the teaching and preaching about divine sovereign predestination must be done in the right way. It must be done, says the confession, in the spirit of discretion and piety. That means in a wise and a godly and a holy manner at the appropriate time and place without inquisitively searching into the ways of the Most High. So, what would be the appropriate time and place to preach about predestination and reprobation? Think about a funeral. Think about the funeral of someone who has led a wayward life. That would not be an appropriate time to have a sermon on reprobation. We don't pre- teach predestination to preschool little children we don't go out on the street evangelizing and begin with a crash course on election that would not be appropriate we must use tact compassion and sanctified common sense so in the church we preach election when the text does whenever it does and we preach it on occasions like this when the confessions do And we do it without inquisitively prying into the secret, deep things of God. When we quote Deuteronomy 29, verse 29, we keep two things in mind. The first part of the text says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. God has nowhere given us a list of the names of the elect. That is, of the secret things that belong to God. But those things, says the text, which are revealed belong to us. God has revealed to us the means of grace by which he saves his elect. God has revealed to us that he works by his word and Holy Spirit in the lives of the elect. And he has revealed to us the infallible fruits of election that that are in the elect's lives. We do not pry into secrets. We remember that when we preach on election, we keep two things in mind. It must be done for the glory of God's most holy name. If that's not our goal, then let's not even talk about it. And for for the enlivening, the encouraging, and the comfort of God's people. The doctrine of election is presented in the word of God by God not for our idle speculation. It's not meant to satisfy our sinful curiosities about the hidden things of God. God did not reveal his eternal purposes to us so that we can debate and speculate about who is and who is not. God did not reveal this to us so that we who are learned and devoted and zealous about election can look down on others who are not. God revealed election to us to promote his own glory. He revealed election to us so that we might find comfort in a world full of sin and doubt. So that we who are sinful and weak and full of fear might place our confidence in God who is gracious, almighty and merciful beyond Words. So, yes, election must be preached in the church of Jesus Christ, but it must be done in a way that gives all honor and glory to God Almighty and comforts the people of God. But how must we think about reprobation? final sentence of article 15 says this is the decree of reprobation and in its opening statement it makes it clear that the decree of reprobation illustrates and recommends to us the eternal and unmerited grace of election so you get the idea that to truly appreciate and adore the glorious doctrine of divine election we also need to understand something of the doctrine of reprobation you always have to keep in mind there are two parts to god's counsel of predestination election and reprobation not just the election but both now we today live in a culture where we think The individual, human being, reigns supreme. In the Western world, we cling dearly to individual rights and liberty and choice. In Western modern thought, it is the individual who is in charge, not God. The individual, they say, does the choosing, not God. Individual makes the final decisions, not God. And if people do believe vaguely in some sort of heaven or hell, then the popular belief is that everyone deserves to go to heaven unless they've done something horrible and awful that disqualifies them. I have a feeling that many of us would be skeptical of the sovereign election and conversion of a terrorist, a Hamas leader. That same skepticism was expressed when Saul was converted on the road to Damascus. When Zacchaeus was saved, there were many who questioned the reality of that. Or what about the thief on the cross? Remember those Jesus on the cross, and there's a thief on either side of him on those crosses too. And at first they're both they're both cursing Jesus and reviling him. No one expected one of them to repent, and yet he did. And how about the conversion of John Newton, the slave trader? who became a minister of the gospel and who wrote that amazing hymn, Amazing Grace. What unlikely recipients of God's electing grace. The same could be said of the Ethiopian eunuch, Cornelius, and the same could be said of every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ here this afternoon. What unlikely recipients of the grace of God. Does it seem strange to you to think of of child killers or drug traffickers or prostitutes and such as possibly belonging to the chosen people of God? Does that seem strange? See, if so, we have not yet begun to fathom the height of God's mercy. Does it seem even stranger to you to think of nice people, like your neighbors maybe? Sometimes we say that about our neighbors. The nicest people, or your relatives possibly belonging to the reprobate, if so you have not yet begun to fathom the depths of man's misery what is really at stake in the doctrine of divine reprobation it's whether all will be saved or whether only some will be saved one of the foundations of the christian religion is the belief that there is only one way of salvation one way, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ. And that makes Christianity a very exclusive religion, an intolerant religion. We believe that all others' faith and do-it-yourself religions are worthless. And that those who follow those religions Will only end up in hell unless they are saved by God's amazing grace. We must face the fact, beloved, that God chooses to save a certain number of sinners out of the human race. Not all of the human race. The fact is, not everyone will be saved. Jesus said, You are chosen. So what happens to those who are not chosen? How does God deal with them? Because the express testimony of Scripture is that not all, but some only are elected while others are passed by in the eternal decree. We always need to speak so carefully and pastorally about reprobation because there are many true believers who are weak in the faith struggle a lot, struggle with temptations, struggle with besetting sins, and such people at times wonder if they are among the reprobate. They, they take their weak faith and, and their struggles with sin as a reason to assume the worst that they don't belong to Christ. And for their sakes, we need to talk very carefully and cautiously about reprobation. So what does the Bible say about the reprobate? As it is summarized here in the Confession, it says three things. God decreed to leave them in the common misery into which they have willfully plunged themselves. To so all, all the human race have willfully plunged ourselves into the common misery of sin. And God decreed to leave the reprobate right where they are. And leave them in the common misery into which they have willfully plunged themselves. That's the first thing. The second thing is this. God decreed not to grant them saving faith and the grace of conversion. That's also in God's decree. I'm going to leave them in their common misery, which they have willfully plunged themselves, and I'm not going to give them saving faith and the grace of conversion. And then the third thing is this, God decreed to condemn and eternally punish them, not only for their unbelief, but also for all their other sins. So they're not only going to be condemned and punished for unbelief, but for all the other sins they committed to. That's the content of God's decree of reprobation. And that raises very difficult questions, doesn't it, for for our human understanding. Sometimes people ask, I mean, isn't God the cause of unbelief in those who don't have faith? After all, A person has faith in Christ only if God gives him that faith. So if someone doesn't have faith, can't we blame God for not granting that person saving faith? And the Bible and our confession say absolutely not. We confessed it in Article 5, the cause or the blame for this unbelief as well as for all other sins is not in God, but in man. The last sentence of Article 15 says, And this is the decree of reprobation, which by no means makes God the author of sin, which is a blasphemous thought. It declares him to be an awful, irreproachable, and righteous judge and avenger of sin. Imagine with me this afternoon that we are in a courtroom and the judge is up on the bench and lined up before that judge are rapists and murderers and thieves and drug dealers and abusers of women and children and not a single one of them is sorry for their crimes. And that's the picture we have. The courtroom, the judge, and all these guilty criminals, not a single one of them, sorry for his crimes. And the judge makes an announcement. He says, I will pardon any one of you who repents, who confesses your sin and turns to me and tells me I'm sorry for what I've done. Now, none of them is sorry for their sins, but now imagine with me if, if that judge is able to make some of them repent, if he has that power to make some of them repent, to, to make something change in them, to make them willing to repent. And if he does that work, makes some of them repent and pardons them, Does that mean that the judge is the cause of the lack of repentance of all the other ones who don't repent? Ain't that true? He causes these ones over here to repent works a change in their heart somehow to make them repent, and these ones don't. So is is the judge responsible for their not repenting? No, he's not. He just left them exactly the way they were. The judge is the cause of the repentance of those who repented, but he's not the cause of the lack of repentance of those who don't repent. That's the way it is with God. God is the cause only of repentance, not of the lack of repentance. Because if he were, that would make him the cause and the author of sin. So God's decree of reprobation, does that mean that God creates some people just for the purpose of sending them to hell. That's how some people talk about it. That's not what reprobation is. Reprobation is non-election. It is a decision by God not to elect some. Reprobation, in the words of the confession, is a passing by and leaving them in their sin and misery of their own choosing, Reprobation is the decision to eternally punish sinners for the evil they have done. Reprobation is not responsible for the damnation of sinners. Sin is what sends men to hell. There's no phrase in the Bible that says the wages of reprobation is death. No, It says the wages of sin is death. And all people, including you and me, are sinners by nature and in practice. And the real question we should be asking is not why. Why did God choose to pass some by? We should be asking why did God choose to elect any to eternal life? He would have been perfectly just. It's like that judge in that courtroom to just leave them all. The real question is not why did God pass over my neighbor? But why did he choose me? I am just as lost in sin as the reprobate. I am just as deserving of eternal punishment in hellfire as the reprobate. By nature, I reject him too and ignore him and resist him just as much as the reprobate. So why Why did God love me? And why did he elect me? See, that's a question for which we don't have the answer except to say God in his sovereign good pleasure chose to do this. And that's the same thing that's true for, for the decree of reprobation the basis of his sovereign, most just, irreprehensible, and unchangeable good pleasure, God makes this decree. And the reason for reprobation, then, is the good pleasure of God, going to be to his honor, to his glory. And we confess, don't we, that we stand here before a mystery. We don't understand, and, and how can that be for God's goodness and God's glory and his good pleasure? And it's not meant for us to dig into that, to pry into the hidden things of God. We must admit, beloved, that this is beyond our understanding. We can and we should distinguish between the reason for reprobation and the reason for punishment. The reason for reprobation is found in God. The reason for punishment is found in man. In reprobation, God chooses to pass some by. But man has plunged himself into sin willingly, and so is rightly under God's judgment. There's no one in hell who does not deserve to be there and there's no one in heaven who deserves to be there it's God's sovereign good pleasure the good pleasure of God is blameless we cannot blame God we cannot argue with God any more than a piece of clay can argue with the potter. As Paul puts it in our text, but indeed, man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed to say, say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Doesn't the potter have power over the clay? In the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor. Let's always be very careful how we talk about reprobation. Not a term we should ever use lightly. And we must never dare to presume that anyone we know, no matter how terrible his or her sin is, is automatically one of the reprobate. Let's not make that mistake. We don't know the mind of God. We do know that notorious conversions do happen. And they happen because of God's decree of sovereign election. And we know that no one is beyond God's electing love. After all, that God who is so great in his mercy, elected, The apostle Paul, the persecutor of his people. He elected Zacchaeus. He elected the thief on the cross. He elected John Newton, the slave trader. And that same God, in his mercy, may also have elected you and me. Let me close by reading to you the lyrics of a a song we heard at a choir concert a few years ago. It's titled, All I Have is Christ. I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy in life had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. And if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. But as I ran my hell-bound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my hopeless state and led me to the cross. And I beheld God's love displayed you suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. Now, all I know is grace. Now, Lord, I would be yours alone and live so all might see. The strength to follow your commands could never come from me. O oh, Father, use my ransom life in any way you choose. And let my song forever be, my only boast is you. And the chorus was, hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus is my life. Amen.